Welcome back to the Black Lives Texas podcast, a project from the Institute of Urban Policy Research and Analysis, also known as IUPRA. We are your hosts. I'm Ricardo Lowe. And I'm Tricy Lowe. This week, we're excited to share our interview with professor and author, Dr. Mary Patillo. Dr. Patillo is professor of sociology and chair of the Department of African American Studies at Northwestern University. She is also the author of Black Big Offenses and Black on the Black. Dr. Patillo's books investigate the economic, spatial, and cultural forces that affect the black middle class, specifically in neighborhoods in Chicago's South Side. Her works also explore gentrification and public housing transformation. Now, being a sociologist, I've heard of Dr. Patillo since I was in undergraduate school, but I became reacquainted with her work in 2019 at a conference held by the Association of Black Sociologists, where she was being acknowledged for the anniversary of her book, Black Picket Fences. And ever since then, I just fell in love with her work again, and I just thought it would be great to have her on so we can discuss a little bit more about the black middle class. And Ricky turned me on to her work and her books, particularly Black Picket Fences, and I really enjoyed it, and we actually got to get her on the show, so we are going to say again, Dr. Pasillo, thank you. We are very honored, and we are now going to get into the episode. So again, we are very happy to have you here. I know that Ricky has been following your work for a really long time, and I'm I'm quickly catching up um, as we continue to work on projects. So we're really honored and kind of like in fandom mode right now um, to have you here. Um, To our audience, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Mary Patillo. So before we start, would you mind briefly introducing yourself and telling us about what inspires you to do this work and what continues to bring you back to it? My name is Mary Patillo. I'm um, the Harold Washington Professor of Sociology and African American Studies. Uh, I want to claim it. Harold Washington was the first Black mayor of Chicago, first elected Black mayor of Chicago. Um, And what brought me to do this work was very much my own personal story of having grown up in a Black middle class neighborhood and then going to college and realizing there was very little research on the Black middle class. in the 1980s, so much of the attention was on poor Black neighborhoods, which is obviously an important focus of sociology, uh, but it's not the entirety of the Black experience. And so I really wanted to study something that was uh, familiar to me, given that sociology is about making the familiar strange, about complicating what you think you know. Um, I was eager to kind of think more about uh, especially Black middle-class spaces. Um, when I went to college, I met Black folks who grew up in the suburbs, which was unheard of for me in Milwaukee. Yes, there were Black people in the suburbs in Milwaukee in the 70s and 80s, but I feel like I knew all of them. And then I got to college and I met lots of Black people who grew up in suburbs, even Black people who grew up in Black suburbs. And I was like, what is that? So, um, So I think it was kind of just um, looking at the world around me, kind of curiosity that got me into this kind of research. In terms of what keeps bringing me back to it, two things. I think the world continues to change. So the Black middle class neighborhoods that I studied in the 1990s are different today. Um, patterns of uh, um, the racial composition of neighborhoods and where people move, all those things change over time. So there's always something new to study. And then there are new angles to uh, come at the study of the Black middle class from. So just recently, I completed a project on the Black middle class in 
Colombia in South America. Um, so that was definitely, you know, same group, but totally different context. <laughs> so that's what brings me back. Always a new angle to explore. Well, that's, that's interesting that you said, uh, Colum my parents are from Panama. I don't uh -huh. know if you can tell, like this Panama, Panama flag, uh -huh. but I can definitely identify with the, the differences in looking at the black middle class across the globe, because in Panama, the black middle class, at least in the area where my parents are from, looks completely different than it did 60 some odd years ago. In the canal zone where my parents were, were born, the canal zone was once operated by the United States government, and they installed the Jim Crow-like segregation mm -hmm. there. And so now that the United States is no longer there, um, the community looks completely different, but mm -hmm. I don't want to steer too much away, but I'm very interested in, in looking into that work that you did in Colombia, because mm -hmm. I would imagine it's kind of similar. Um, so I, we can go into our next question. Um, so in 2019, the Association of Black Sociologists, um, I went to that conference and we celebrated the 20th anniversary of your Black Picket Fences, um, which is an amazing work as the catalyst pretty much for all of the ongoing research on the black middle class. Would you mind discussing the Black Picket Fences um, book that you wrote and also what initially inspired you to study the black middle class? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, always important to give shout outs. So yes, I think Black Picket Fences is one of the earliest, earlier works in what I would say is a next generation of studies on the black middle class. So Bart Landry had published a, a book called The Black Middle Class in the late 1980s. Um, it was much more kind of um, generally descriptive. It wasn't a neighborhood study. So, um, so it was a little bit different, but then, um, uh, you know, I think a number of us, Karen Lacey, for example, and many other folks have, have kind of moved in that direction. Um, so is it a little bit, you want to know a little bit more about still what inspired me to, to, do that kind of work? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm interested in inspire. So the Black Picket Fences, but you were talking about this uh, Groveland, uh, mm -hmm. the neighborhood in Southside Chicago. What, what inspired you to study that particular neighborhood? Gotcha. Okay, that particular neighborhood. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. As all sociologists know, there is a real logistical component to what we choose to study. And so there I was in graduate school uh, at the University of Chicago, um, luckily in a city with a lot of black people. So it is, was not hard to study black people in Chicago um, and, with, and in a city that is extremely heterogeneously black. So heterogeneous by social class, it's actually not so heterogeneous by ethnicity. So uh, interestingly, uh, Ricardo, you say that your family's from Panama. That was another eye-opening thing moving from Milwaukee to New York when I went to college, which was, wait a minute, you aren't the kind of black person I'm used to. You're, what do you mean your family's not from Mississippi? What do you mean your family's not from Louisiana? <laughs> so <laughs> Chicago is not so diverse in that regard. But, um, but given that I wanted, I came into graduate school wanting to study uh, the black middle class um, because of how much I had read in undergraduate about poor black neighborhoods and wanting to um, build on that research and, and I think give a more a, a broader and more representative picture of black communities. Um, I was also, I'll say one other story, which is I got to the University of Chicago, we did a bus tour, a sociological bus tour that a professor at the university uh, ran. And we were on a bus going through a black middle-class neighborhood in Chicago and 
you know, Chicago black folks love to manicure their lawns. So this, these lawns, they carve shapes into bushes. So there might be a, a elephant or there might be a dove, you know, there's all, it's, it's, it's really picturesque. And the professor who was white said, some of you all might think this is a white neighborhood, but this is actually a black neighborhood. And I was like, why would they have to think it's a white neighborhood? And part of the answer to why they would think it's a white neighborhood is because there is no sociology on black middle-class neighborhoods. So if all you read is the sociology, all you think is that black neighborhoods are poor and white neighborhoods are not. <laughs> um, so that was a good motivation for what I was already interested in. So then how did I choose this neighborhood? Um, we did, I was part of a larger research study that was headed up by uh, William Julius Wilson and Richard Taub. And they were doing a study on working in middle-class neighborhoods uh, across race. And so we had a pretty, you know, sophisticated um, set of census statistics to compare neighborhoods, median household income, percent of the neighborhood residents who own their homes, occupational, um, descriptives, percentage unemployed, percentage with a college degree, you know, all the things that go into how you, how we sociologists measure class. And, um, and then given the array of black neighborhoods in Chicago, we could kind of see which ones were more lower income and which ones were more middle income. And in Chicago, there are, you know, plenty to choose for, from in terms of choosing a black middle-class neighborhood. So I still don't say what neighborhood, the real neighborhood in Chicago, Groveland is a pseudonym, um, but you know, there's a whole, in, in the book I have a map that shows there are a whole collection of neighborhoods on the South side that would fit a middle-class distinct um, definition by income or education or home ownership. Uh, so it was really that process of thinking about, you know, does, like there was one neighborhood that would fit demographically, but it was super residential. And so getting access to the neighborhood, which we usually do through institutions, whether that's libraries or parks or schools or churches, um, this neighborhood just didn't have that many of them. It, the boundaries of the neighborhood seemed to, you know, all those things were right on the outskirts of the neighborhood. So, um, so choosing a neighborhood that had a sufficient number of institutions and businesses that uh, would allow for a little bit easier entry. And then you could start um, just talking to residents who live there who aren't members of those institutions. So that's how I picked Groveland. All right, thank you. And so uh, from talking to Ricky, and you've kind of alluded to this a little bit in your previous answer in terms of of middle-class neighborhoods, but he's talked about how one of the most complicated tasks as a demographer is finding just an objective way to define and conceptualize the, the middle-class. And so could you explain for me and our audience, um, explain how you've defined the black middle-class in your research? And again, you started to talk a little bit about that and the criteria that you use to measure this group. Mm -hmm. I think the most important point about talking about the middle class, whether it's the black middle class, the white middle class, Latinx middle class, is as sociologists, we recognize that it's a multifaceted definition. So I think um, oftentimes either economists or quantitatively minded sociologists, uh, either because of data limitations or for parsimony's sake, will choose one definition. And they might choose 
people whose incomes are twice the median income or twice the poverty line, or, you know, they, they choose something. And I actually don't think there is huge agreement on exactly what to choose. <laughs> um, in the one co uh, collaborative study I've done with um, Colleen Heflin that tr tries to quantitatively define the black middle class, we use a definition of two to six times the poverty line. Um, so today, if the poverty level for a family of I think three is some or four is somewhere around twenty thousand dollars. That would mean families making between forty thousand and one hundred and twenty thousand um, dollars. But in a qualitative study like Black Picket Fences, I don't have to be so strict in my definition, and I can consider a number of things. And that's why I said that we looked at a number of things. So I think the big or I would argue in sociology are income, education, occupation, and wealth. I think wealth is a newer one. I think it used to be the big three, and now we've added wealth. Um, and when I did Black Picket Fences, you know, there, there are no census data on wealth, so I couldn't kind of characterize the wealth holdings of the folks in the neighborhood. And we know that even that middle-class Black people have way lower wealth than middle-class white people and oftentimes zero wealth. So that would have been pretty hard, but I still think wealth is part of our definitions of class these days. So those I think are the more easily quantified measures. There's, and then I would say four and a half is home ownership. But then we start getting into the normative discussions of middle-class. And by normative, I mean, yes, home ownership is a an economic measure insofar as you have to have a down payment and it increases your wealth or can increase your wealth and so on. But it's normative in that we think about home ownership as about buying into a philosophy of the American dream around private property, around especially single family control of one space, around nuclear family formation, all of these kinds of things I think are a bit more normative and sometimes don't even really apply to middle-class black folks in that just because you're a homeowner doesn't mean that it's a nuclear family that lives there. So one of the chapters in Black Picket Fences is about how past houses passed down intergenerationally and can even include skipped generations, a grandmother and a grandchild, or the three generations, a grandparents, plural, a child and their child. So I don't think that those normative assumptions always apply to black middle-class neighborhoods, but that's why I'm talking about home ownership kind of moving into the normative domain. And then when we get to that normative domain or what we might also call performative domain, it goes well beyond home ownership to the thing that I started off with, which is, you know, do you keep your lawn nice? Um, uh, do you, what do you, can you code switch between black English and standard English? Um, are you a member of a black sorority or fraternity? So these are the more kind of performative um, aspects of middle-classness that I actually touch a lot more on in my second book, Black on the Block, than I do in Black Picket Fences, although I talk about it a bit in Black Picket Fences. You, you spoke a little bit about um, William Julius Wilson as well, who was your mentor back in college. Um, not just his work, but can you also talk about how your work 
is informed by previous works on the black middle class. So how is my work influenced by previous work on the black middle class? You know, there wasn't that much when I started. And uh, as a result, I think early on in my career, because I worked with William Julius Wilson, and then I had a postdoc at the University of Michigan that was at a place called the Poverty Center, I very much saw myself in conversation with two groups of scholars, the segregation scholars and the poverty scholars, you know, all urban scholars, but, um, but definitely not any kind of group of people who were studying the black middle class. Um, uh, Elizabeth Higginbotham had an early study on black middle class women and their sense of responsibility to the black community, which was super helpful. I mentioned Bart Landry's work. Uh, and then I really had to look back to the classics. So E. Franklin Frazier's The Black Bourgeoisie, Du Bois very much looked at the black community in its heterogeneity. And then St. Clair Drake and Horace Caton's Black Metropolis, which you know, is really like my Bible as a Chicago scholar, um, is all about class in the black community. So, um, you know, those books, Du Bois's Philadelphia Negro from 1899, uh, um, Drake and Caton's uh, Black Metropolis from 1945, and E. Franklin Frazier's Black Bourgeoisie from 1957, are classic works about the Black community that are indispensable for anybody who wants to study the Black community now. So much so that, you know, you often read chapters from Black Metropolis and you're like, okay, why do I need to do any research now? Because they said it back in 1945. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to add to this. <laughs> um, <laughs> they were very prescient. They were very thorough uh, in documenting class cleavages and class alliances and all these things that I mentioned, the difference between the kind of quantitative measures of class and the performative uh, ways that we um, manifest our class standing, you know, it's super rich theoretically and empirically, that body of literature. So, so I use that a lot. Right. And you know, what's, what's interesting when I first got introduced to, you know, doing work on the black middle class, at least trying to understand it, I came across E. Franklin Frazier's work, of course, as an undergrad in soci sociology. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because you mentioned this before, they, the work is, is very important, but you also notice that there seems to be this optimistic view of the black middle class in relation to the black urban poor. And so it's this idea that the black middle class are, might be leaving behind this urban poor population. And we know that that's not necessarily the case, especially in the state of Texas, I can tell you in Dallas, for example, Oak Cliff is a historically black neighborhood. Um, mm -hmm. And this is a historically disadvantaged uh, black neighborhood. And it's actually where Tracy is from. She She's from Oak Cliff. She reps it hard every day. <laughs> and um, <laughs> she reps it hard. And she's she's put me on to, to game about living in Oak Cliff and how right below Oak Cliff is a suburban city by the name of DeSoto which is literally 10 minutes away. And it's a black middle class. If we were to use the same type of criteria that, you know, mm -hmm. most use, this is definitely a black middle class neighborhood. Mm -hmm. like the proximity to Oak Cliff is literally a couple blocks. Mm -hmm. So this is exactly what you were saying in your work. Definitely. That's exact. That's totally what motivated 
my interest in the spatial formations of black class stratification. So similarly in Milwaukee, I grew up in what was probably a black working class to lower middle class neighborhood, but totally adjacent to poor black neighborhoods. Um, and it was exactly that adjacency and that um, fluidity about across borders, uh, but also policing of those borders mm -hmm. <laughs> and real cognizance of what those borders meant that uh, interested me. I mean, in Chicago, for example, the, there's a phrase called the low end. Um, so Groveland is not in the low end, but the poorer black parts of Chicago are, were often called the low end. And it always struck me that term. On the one hand, it very clearly meant that the numbers were lower. Chicago is a city that goes, you know, 20th Street, 21st Street, 22nd Street, 23rd Street, and the black middle-class neighborhoods are more like 79th Street, 87th Street, and the black poor neighborhoods are 35th Street. So the low end are the, is the lower end of the number spectrum, but you get a double, you know, a double bang for your butt by saying the low end if you're trying to disparage that particular neighborhood. So that fluidity is always, always exists alongside the disparaging, the exclusion, the finger pointing, the, and that fit, all of that is mutual. I mean, you know, for folks who live on the low end also have, you know, um, disparaging terms for the folks who think they uppity or bougie or whatever the word is in neighborhoods like Rome. I know you said that the community, the black middle-class neighborhood that you studied looks completely different now. And, um, we wanted to know what your thoughts on black suburbanization was and how this process affects the black middle class. Yeah, that's a great question that I feel a little less equipped to answer because mostly my reading is secondary and, and I haven't studied it. So it's interesting that um, many people who read black picket fences think Groveland is in the suburbs. And I think even in some reviews of the book that, you know, got past the editors who of course wouldn't have read the book in its entirety. And so it'll say something like this suburban community uh, talking about Groveland, whereas Groveland is in the city of Chicago. Um, and now I think there is a growing literature actually on black suburbanization. Uh, I think black people fences might be, have you know, kind of be in the beginning of that tradition despite it not being a suburban area but I think the distinction made about uh, black suburbanization is an important one because what you get through black suburbanization is, first of all, obviously when you exit from the city, you are uh, exiting what are longer standing, standing patterns of racial housing segregation. So, you know, part of the, explanation for racial segregation in housing is this kind of replication of past patterns that were set by all of the usual suspects that we know, redlining and restrictive covenants and uh, violence and so on and so forth. And because suburbs are new, more newly built and often built after the Fair Housing Act, um, they weren't built with restrictive covenants on the homes. Not all of them, because some suburbs had restrictive covenants, obviously, but they weren't built with them and they were often in their early instantiations a bit more heterogeneous. I think what Chicago again offers, but so do cities like Atlanta and um, DC and other, especially big cities, Memphis even, is predominantly black suburbs, which 
what I love about Karen Lacey's book is her comparison of a predominantly black suburb in the DC metro area, a mixed suburb, and then a predominantly white suburb in a different county that's a super rich county. And so you got a lot of, um, you know, she focuses on both the desires of black families and what they're trying to achieve for their families in terms of wealth and the raising of their kids by choosing these different kinds of suburbs and how their choices impact their ability to raise their kids. So, you know, the examples of the folks living in the predominantly white suburbs of needing to find black social networks for their children and thus using things like Jack and Jill and other black elite organizations to do so. Um, uh, Whereas, and the resource constraints of the black middle-class folks who live in the predominantly black suburb, because that county is much poorer because of the points that I raise in black picket fences, which is if you have a majority black neighborhood, it's likely to be poorer than a majority white neighborhood just because of the distribution of incomes and poverty rates across the two uh, racial groups. So I think I went well beyond what your question was asking, but I, I, what I really wanna say is I encourage folks who are thinking about studying black suburbanization. And I'm particularly interested in now, interested now in black folks living in not predominantly black neighborhoods because the modal, um, the modal situation in the largest metropolitan areas is that, that uh, in, I think it was in mid 2010s uh, that, um, the average black person didn't live in a majority black neighborhood. So we had a discussion over um, your work and we, 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 we thought about the fact that I, the ideological, ideological perspectives between black middle-class families and poorer families may differ and therefore it can affect their social and political cohesion, political cohesion. So can you talk about how these differences may be manifested in your research, particularly on Groveland and Chicago? Um, and, and if so, how did these families overcome these differences to say advance collective policy work or collective improvement in their neighborhoods? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say it's a constant project, a constant set of negotiations, a constant set of disagreements, a constant set of remembering that you're still neighbors, uh, all of those things. I think one of the important, one, one thing that grew out of my study of Groveland was this, um, quantitative study, that I study I mentioned with uh, Colleen Heflin, where we documented uh, that Black middle-class folks are more likely to have a poor sibling and to have, uh, um, to have been poor themselves when they were younger than our white middle-class folks. So that means they also have, still have poor parents. Um, and we called this paper Poverty in the Family. And I think that uh, is helpful for also thinking about what's happening in neighborhoods because since people have poverty in the family, they also have poverty in the neighborhoods. And uh, that I think gives people practice in doing the kinds of negotiations um, that are necessary. Now, what do I mean by these negotiations are necessary? This is where we get into this performative component of class. I mean, the many of the um, schisms in the neighborhood were around, uh, what it means to live in a black, black middle-class neighborhood. You know, so it was around trash and around uh, loitering, especially. It was around loud music. It was around 
uh, cars speeding down the street. It was around all these kinds of things that many of the black middle-class families aspired to what they envisioned as a serene, well-kept uh, neighborhood that they were, they had exited a kind of overcrowded, chaotic neighborhood, especially the first generation who had migrated to Chicago from the South and moved into the low end, the, the more congested part of Chicago's Black Belt. And then home ownership was really about getting space and privacy and quiet. And they perceived both newcomers, lower income newcomers and renters, but also some homeowners uh, who they perceived as being lower income as uh, unsettling that vision that they had of this black middle-class neighborhood. And so much of the negotiation was around this performative part of class. But on the I perhaps more, I don't know, concrete things like, as you mentioned, uh, everybody, nobody wanted folks to get shot. Nobody wanted folks to drop out of high school. Nobody mm -hmm. wanted folks to get evicted. Nobody wanted folks to be unhealthy. So, you know, these were shared visions. And then the question is, how do you um, move those forward? And that's where I think this point about people's families being quite heterogeneous, which gives them a kind of sympathy and uh, willingness uh, to see their plight as connected. I mean, obviously in the literature, we called this idea of linked fate, the idea that what happens to black people in general affects me. So I think that this familial familiarity with um, people on both sides of the class line or people who have moved up the ladder or people who are moving down the ladder <laughs> uh, made people um, sympathetic to and wanting to work collectively towards uh, better schools and less crime and so on. You know, this, but you know, I keep going back and forth because this is the complexity of black middle-class neighborhoods. I don't wanna be romantic about it. I don't wanna act like there weren't real divisions and neighbors didn't just dislike each other for how they acted or what they thought, you know, your child doesn't value education or what have you. All those things existed. That's why I'm saying it's just a constant uh, renegotiation of kind of what are our collective goals and are you with me or against me and those kinds of things. Yeah. And what you say reminds me a lot of, of my own neighborhood and thinking about some of my family members and how the loud music and, and those things are things that annoy them because I would consider them middle class and, and, but the neighbors, you know, it's just a different just a different vibe and like the things that they would aspire that their neighborhood used to be and now how it looks now is very different but yet within our family is of course you have incomes along along the range and so that negotiation happens a lot so when you were talking I was like yes I've seen seen all of these things heard these things so I mm -hmm. could appreciate uh and what I try to do in both black picket fences and I think again even more so in black on the block is um, understand how many people's uh, practices and performances are also very much tied to their own economics. So in Black on the Block, I have this chapter where there are two people who live next door to each other. One's a banker and one woman works part-time for a bus company. Mm -hmm. And the banker is just so um, uh, derisive about, just, all, just looks down on the woman who works for the bus company because they're always sitting on their porch 
they have whole conversations on their uh, phones on the porch. They eat, they eat dinner on the porch, they, you know, and it, as always people coming by visiting on the porch. And the woman who works with a bus company talks badly about the banker because she's like, they built this addition onto the back of their house. So they drive into their garage, they go straight into their house. They never come out. They never speak. They, you know, like they don't have good home training. They're not neighborly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everybody's looking uh, across the class line, but on the part of the woman who works for the bus company, part of the reason why so much of um, family life and home life gets is happening on the porch is especially in the summer is they didn't have air conditioning and they don't didn't have money to you know totally rehab their house this banker the banker woman completely gut rehabbed her house these houses are built in the 1890s so you can imagine how much repair was needed on the inside of the house of somebody who doesn't have the money to keep up with a house from 1890 and so the porch is I don't have to look at that leaky faucet. I don't have to look at those wooden floors that are that are coming up in various places. I don't have to look at this plaster falling down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't have air conditioning. So it's better out here on the porch. I'm not saying everybody's going to understand that. But um, oftentimes what we think is just what we think in our minds and that we disparage so much has a real rooting in in both economic situations, but also those economic situations create pleasurable encounters. So once you've grown up sitting on a porch and the family comes over and visits you on the porch, that's what you know is fun. And the idea of going to sit in the basement with all that, you know, air conditioned air and you can't see anybody but the people who are in the basement with you, mm -hmm. ew. <laughs> so. Mm -hmm. Think of what folks are used to and, and how that kind of grows from people's economic situations. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Patillo. Um, I know that you are very busy around this time and we are mm -hmm. very grateful for you to, to be able to speak with us and get a better understanding of the black middle class. I wanted to speak with you a little bit more a couple of years ago when I first met you, I was a little bit starstruck <laughs> but you I, I i did ask a question um related to something that you said earlier about um understanding the the necessity of examining census blocks and how census block the demographics of people who live in census blocks how they change over time mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of things that you said that day and there's a lot of things you said throughout this podcast that tracy and i are excited to take into our own research and so we thank you so much for that well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again to our guest, Dr. Mary Patillo. Links to her books and other works can be found in our show notes. What questions do you have about home ownership, education, and other issues facing the Black middle class? Email us your thoughts as a voice memo or a note at BlackLivesTexasPodcast at gmail.com. We will be back in two weeks with an episode focusing on deed restrictions and home purchasing within the Black middle class. Also, if you have been enjoying the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your community. Black Lives Texas is a podcast by the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis at UT Austin. It is produced and hosted by Tracy Lowe and Ricardo Lowe, with additional production and editing by Mariah Gossett. Our music is by Upper Reality. Until next time. Hasta la próxima. See you later.